Studs, and my guest this week is uh, Tom Spurgeon. Tom is the man behind the Comics Reporter, uh, probably one of my main go-to daily comics journalism visits uh, in the morning to find out what's going on in the world I don't know enough about, as well as Tom is the um, festival uh, coordinator, probably getting the job wrong, for the upcoming uh, Cartoon Crossroads Columbus out of uh, Columbus starting in 2016. Um, did I get your job title wrong, Tom? You totally got it wrong. Um, yes. It's a festival director. Uh, it's director. the same thing. I, you know, who knows? I understand that, that Brandon is with us. I understand, and I understand, Brandon, you're a cartoonist. Is this true? Yeah, yeah, that's all true. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm with you in, uh, yeah, I'm here. Okay. I just wanted, because it's kind of creepy that we were just going to talk without you being introduced yeah. at all. Oh, he wasn't actually supposed to say anything throughout the whole interview. He was just going to breathe heavily. Well, I yeah. got that covered. I got that covered. Oh, a bit a mammal that breathes? 
This is the worst introduction to a show you've ever done, brother. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, Tom. Uh, especially since I've got so much respect for Tom. And uh, like I said, uh, I think his site's really important and um, definitely one of the go-to sites um, to really get a wide idea of what's going on in comics um, beyond um, the various superhero whatnots. Um, Probably the only person I see that really covers international issues, especially with um, strip journalism, editorials. Um, and, so. and superhero stuff as well. It seems like it's, it's a very broad, Tom has a very broad spectrum of what's going on in the entirety of comics, when he, as, much as, as much as one human could. I, I like all the comics, I will say that. I, I, as much as I get down on my own work, I, the one thing I do have is I have fairly broad taste. In terms of what interests me or what coverage areas interest me, really? so that is a I guess that would be a feature of of comics reporter. Um, I, there's stuff that I don't understand very well. I'm not very good with web comics. I'm not very good with manga, and I'm not very good with um, I don't go very deep with European comics. But right. uh, it, uh, yeah, the, all the different expressions of cartooning and comics are uh, are something I'm I'm really interested in. So yeah, thank you, Robin. Thank you. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the uh, festival that you're a big part of that's starting in 2016. Uh, around what time of the year is it supposed we're, to be? We're going to try to slip into the kind of a, a mid-fall, kind of between SPX and New York Comic Con. And uh, that, you know, I think what, what happened was that a bunch of us looked, a bunch of us that are, a bunch of folks in Columbus looked around and they looked at the calendar and they thought, we need more conventions. <laughs> we need more festivals. There simply aren't enough gathering of cartoonists and comics people. Um, now, you know, to, to be serious, you know, the Columbus, Ohio is, is um, an up-and-coming comics town. It's where the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum is located. This magnificent facility right on, on, on Ohio State's campus that was described to me by a gentleman from the Angoulême Festival as the nicest place in the world for comics. Nice. And it is a spectacular facility. They used to, in an earlier form, do an every three-year co- kind of a private comics festival where the syndicates would bring in and you know would 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 kind of supply some money and they would supply some money and they would bring in speakers from the comics world for kind of a uh, kind of a limited or kind of a prestige comic con. And that that financial model doesn't work for them any longer. So Columbus needed something. To replace it, they have a small press festival in the spring called Space, mm-hmm. which is kind of a cousin yeah. show to SBX in that they both came out of Spirits of Independent uh, tour right. stops back in the day. It's interesting, though, and in I, I remember for years it was the one place that, like, wasn't it the one place in the Americas that Dave Sim would show up to? Yeah, no, for a while they were, uh, they were probably as closely aligned to him as any show ever has been. And, and it went, it's, it's always kind of a weird... Side element to that in that Jeff Smith, of course, and Dave Sim feuded, and Jeff is the local cartoonist extraordinaire in Columbus. So to bring it back to the festival, they need they they had a lack of kind of a big show. They have a they have a wizard show and they have a small press festival, but they don't have like a big comic show anymore now that cartoon art festival is no longer viable. Jeff Smith is getting at that age where I think he's starting to think about legacy and I think he's starting to think about what he contributes to his profession. And so he was kind of interested in doing a show that focused on 
professional development and helping out young cartoonists and providing them tools to kind of succeed in the, the in the modern comics world and, and have some of the same breaks that he's had along the way. And so it, that brought you into this. And that's what and then Jeff was the one that that, that I'm friendly I'm friendly with through you know years of just I guess being around comics. And uh, he was actually the first interview that we did in the journal when I was there. So he was like the first comics guy that I talked to on the phone and that I'd read and thought was really weird and kind of cool to be talking to him. But we've, we've remained friendly since, and, and Jeff brought me in to kind of be a director of this. And they have a, a lot of institutional support there. Um, so what we're looking at is hopefully in 2016 to do a four-day citywide festival, half up on campus, half downtown in the library like TCAF and bring in a variety of institutions from all over town to kind of contribute different things. Um, we're going to do a film festival. We're going to do an academic conference. We're going to do um, focused panel presentations and classwork. We're going to do a, and hopefully do a, a kind of a straight up, very you know successful, uh, lots of people in the audience comics uh, show on the weekend. So, yeah, we hope that we can show off Columbus a little bit. We can show off all the different parts of the art form and kind of uh, just you know have another really good show that kind of focuses on the things that Jeff and the Billy Ireland and this really great comics town wants to focus on. Right. So would I be right to assume that it sounds to me like it's like it, TCAF, you know, is an amazing convention that that has kind of the free doors open to everyone. It's at the library and it's like a convention. It's like a it's like a wet dream of a comic book store with the beguiling running it. Right. Is this is this almost like the, a similar thing, but but backed by a school in the way that the TCAF's backed by a comic store? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, we'll have a, we'll have a variety of different of uh, institutions kind of backing us, so um, it will take on that kind of. We hope it'll take on that kind of broader flavor and. You know, for instance, like the 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 two comics institute. Like we talk about an academic conference, but that'll be there's two different academics at um, Columbus College of Art and Design and at Ohio State, which will be running that. So that's an aspect that we'll have there every year, and hope it will be fun. You know, I guess the the question is always like, what? How do you differentiate a show because there are so many good shows? And I don't, I don't want to like say that we're going to reinvent the wheel. I think that there are things that we, we will emphasize. We will emphasize those kind of practical skills for, for cartoonists and we'll emphasize, you know, the history and the Billy Ireland's mission and we'll emphasize um, Columbus and kind of showing off Columbus. Um, yeah, it's being Columbus but, means that there's a comic history and Smith being from there and I think Paul Pope's from there as well. Yeah. Paul Pope is from there as well. They have a, a tradition going way back with you know Milton Kniff, who was the original donor to the Billy Ireland. Right. Um, Billy Ireland himself was kind of a, a massive one of those giants of the prairie and you know newspaper terms back in the first couple decades of the century. And it's it's one of those you know it's one of those towns that's, that's kind of a really nice growing regional art center. Uh, the Columbus difference, of course, is that Columbus is giant. Like Columbus is like the biggest town that no one talks about. It's scary. It's like this big thug in the back of the room that no one, because there's a humongous number of people there. So it has those big city advantages, but it also kind of feels like some of these, you know, smaller towns that kind of have an art scene, like Asheville, North Carolina, or Mm-hmm. Portland. It, it, you mentioned when we were talking on our pre-interview about it being kind of a hidden Portland, and it does have those possibilities for sure. And it hasn't faced the same kind of financial collapse as a lot of other 
Midwest big cities? No, it hasn't as much. You know, it's, it does it does have the cheap rents and it does have those elements to it. But you know, the because it's the state capital, it's state government. And it's also a big insurance capital of the world, which really hasn't been hit as hard. So, um, yeah, between those two businesses, they've been, and they, of course, the university um, is a massive employer, too. And they have uh, several schools there, but especially Ohio State. So they've done okay. Now, this is a job going into that. Um, I hope this is sound too rude, but you don't have a lot of experience in directly coordinating festivals at all, more observational. We don't. I don't. I, I just stare at them and criticize them. So it'd be like if I were if I were hired to do like a comic book, like a really good comic book, and it's terrifying. Thank you for scaring the shit out of me, Rob. <laughs> Sorry, Tom. But you know, it, it, is, it is that. And you know, one of the reasons we're this this next October we're going to do a two day launch event, or we're going to do a very small, kind of a half sized version of the two day comic show part of it. Um, we're going to do a one-day comic show and then have some classes the day before and kind of show off the library because we don't know what we're doing in terms of running a comic show. And there is a huge learning curve. It's really mm-hmm. hard to run a comic show. Right. Uh, all the different aspects of it are really hard. But all the great shows that we have right now are kind of um, they're veteran shows. And not only does that mean, does, does that mean like the, the organizers, people like Warren Bernard and Chris Butcher are these really capable – guys that are really good at running shows, but they've also kind of built up an expectation with an audience. Yeah. And, and the SPX audience is like the big, like it's something we never talk about with SPX, but there's like this audience, this regional audience where that's their thing to do. They go, they, they, they kind of descend on this hotel and buy and buy like mad from people, you know, once a year. And TCAP's a really good selling show too. And the most of the successful newer ones have kind of, <clears throat> found a way to to be good selling shows too. I mean, Brooklyn, I think, is always a, a pretty good show for people to to sell, you know, um, material. People come there looking to shop, and that's that is a really hard task. And so we might, I, might we might fail spectacularly, but we we hope not. We hope that uh, we can get uh, we can slip one more show in there. And I think that you know, like comic books, we can talk about the conception of it, but it, it all comes down to execution, right? It comes down to what it's like on the ground and what the experience is like. And, you know, I think there's some things that we can do that maybe some of the other shows don't. We can extend, um, our, our guest list will extend to mainstream guests, I think a little bit more readily than some of the other shows, even though TCAF has moved in that direction a little bit. Um, and we also um, we'll have a lot of we'll have a lot of flexibility in terms of what the component institutions can bring to bear. I think so. Uh, it'll, it'll be fun. I just hope that people pay attention and follow. And and when we get the word out in January about the the first show, the kind of launch show, I hope people will will pay attention and maybe consider stopping by or or trying to exhibit or or at least uh, giving us a shot. Um, so yeah, this next October is the the launch event, and then we go wide and, and big and, and bold in 2016. We'll see how it goes. And, uh, I want to ask a little bit, of, uh, you mentioned um, bringing in more mainstream folks, uh, which Thought Bubble actually does yeah. really nicely too, and it, and it seems to work well, because right now comics aren't as limited as it seems as far right. as like this delineated line. 
between the SPXers and the Emerald City, or there is some some crossover more than there was, say, ten years ago. Well, I mean, clearly, Robin. I mean, the the models for success in comics, in mainstream comics, your models are people like um, Mark Miller and Robert Kirkman, and um, you know Matt and Kelly Sue and Ed Brubaker. These creators that have a a giant part of what they do is not just being company men or women. It's very much about having your own workout and having, if that's genre work that's different than the art comics. Those are also all writers, which is interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, but it's self-directed in that same way. I mean, they're there, (laughs) they're presenting themselves in a way that's similar to how, you know, people present themselves. And certainly, Brandon, you're a guy that straddles both worlds. No, it's not, it's not, um, it's not considered. A, I, in fact, I don't know anyone. I don't know who would you. Th- I, w- I wouldn't know who to think of to think of like a purely company man cartoonist at this point, right? Like a pure well, they, DC. That, 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 that's not. No, that's talking about presidential level. You mean like Jim? Not well, like Jim, Jim Lee. Jim Lee or Jeff or you know. Those, I mean, those guys are invested and they don't have a big significant aspect to what they do. But yeah. even a guy like, you know, like the writer Scott Snyder that came along recently. I mean, that's. He's a guy that that you know also has his image books too. So there's there's definitely it's easier to cross over than it would be than it would have been you know 20 years ago. When those yeah, worlds... I feel like the readership's very much blurring because if you're getting like a if you're getting a Kelly Sue or Matt Fraction or whatever comic, then your you know your your foot's already in Indian. It's not that hard to go from that to like a a Daniel Klaus comic or whatever. No, I think I think that's right, and I, you know and and you know everyone's that's the one thing we've learned kind of in the last two years of just kind of hammering at our social, our, the milieu, the social, the culture of comics mm. is to stop putting kind of the presumption that there's a certain kind of a better way to consume comics or a better way to um, read comics is something that's been under assault and it's good. You know, like my, I have, a, I have an older brother with, I have two brothers. My older brother with is very much, his tastes are a lot like mine. You know, they tend to be broader and they tend to be more art or alt comics focused. Right. I have a younger brother who's just the only comics he's interested in is interested in like a few superhero comics. And there's nothing, you know, silly to even say that. But there's nothing wrong with that. However, anyone wants to get on board. If you're right. a little kid that wants to read Archie, that's great. If you're a guy that just wants to pick up a Batman comic every now and then, if you're my mom, you know, wants to every so often she'll be interested in what you know little orphan Annie collections are out there. You know, it's like there's a a million ways <clears throat> to get on board with comics, and all of them are equally kind of great in their own way. So uh, there's no, I like that. I like that we've kind of gotten past this idea of kind of like perfect fans and perfect. Uh, <laughs> Perf ideal reading, ideal readers, or ideal reading experiences. It's just, man. However you want to come in, that's it's perfectly, it's perfectly great. It should be a big tent. It's a medium. It's not a, a clubhouse. It's not a right. Certainly. Yeah, it's not. You know, it's not. It's not even. It's not even the kind of medium that, that sh- it should be a mass medium. It, it has the potentialities. It it, it, it works well online. It. it Print carries into all corners of the world. It's not like a theater performance where you even have to like go somewhere to see it. You know, it can come to you. So I think that that's kind of indicative in kind of the success that Kelly Sue's had with uh, Pretty Deadly because she's been so great at engaging your fans, engaging your audience, 
and able to bring forward a pretty different comic than what would be expected to come uh, from someone coming from Marvel um, and people being open to trying taking chances with these different works. Yeah, and yep. certainly yeah, Amarillo's doing just coming from a different place and doing weirder work in it than you would get from her doing the same work in a Marvel on a Marvel book with an editor saying, you know, we're going to have to put Spider-Man's origin at the beginning of this. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think that's all. I think that's all true, and I think that's all. Um, yeah, there's just no. I, you know, I think that's great. I think there are people that that will that kind of are bigger than their that are bigger than the the work that they do and that they have carryover and that you become like a um, an Ed Brubaker fan or rather than kind of fans of individual comics. But then again, it's perfectly fine for if someone is just interested in their in their take on those kind of corporate products. It just doesn't seem to me like it's not there's not that compelling kind of um, rush to find a certain perfect way it's like we you know the old paradigm used to be like we were always looking for legitimate comics right or we were looking for a place to have those comics be legitimate you're looking for but we you know we have that now you know Joe Sacco moves you know he has the audience that you would expect someone like Joe Sacco to have and Chris Ware has an audience and Dan Klaus has an audience and the bros have an audience and everyone would like them to be bigger but it's not it's not where it was where it just seemed like, you know, just crazy that you would even suggest that these people have an, have an audience. There was a great argument, like a great early internet, comics internet argument, because all things about the comics internet are great. <laughs> uh, but the, there was a great argument that they used to have before the bookstores opened up, where guys that were very much into superhero comics would argue that, that comic shops were um, an ideal marketplace. And that everything sold according to merit in perfect proportion to what how those things were demanded in the real world. That's cartoonish. I like that. Yeah. And I was like, so if you, you know, so Spider-Man sold, you know, 40 times more than Chris Ware because that, because Spider-Man was 40 times better or Spider-Man was 40 times more appealing. And what we found out was that, you know, when Chris got a shot at the bookstore market, then he could move book units uh, on certainly on a level with, with some of these properties, right? Yeah. And so it's not, you... so the, the economic reality is kind of like made us all kind of, you know, kind of shake our heads. And we have all of these different models now and all of these, all of these ways that if, it may not lead to the kind of art that you and I like or the, even the best art, but it's, there are certainly legitimate artistic expressions going on that are supported by people and have kind of power and weight behind them right. all over the place, which is kind of really exciting. Pretty cool. You want to say something, Brandon? No, my, my brain exploded from that. I'm, I, I, it is, <laughs> I'm just thinking about how, how, um, how interesting it is when something that so many people connect to their, to their themselves and connect to um, and I'm just thinking about how how consumerism t- connected to the art form is interesting, and I, I think I'm just I'm roundabout going to think that if you took a comic book store where people are used to going in and buying Batman every month, and you just took like a you just made four shelves of Fred Perry's Gold Digger in there, <laughs> I bet that that town would sell an amazing amount of Gold Digger, and people would really. I, I went up to um, the Yukon with Simon Roy for a convention recently. And everyone there was really into Cross, and I'd never met anyone that read Cross before. I read Cross, remember? Oh yeah, no, I was, um, <laughs> I was shaking my head at you about that yesterday. <laughs> yeah, but, 
there used to be kind of room for uh, there used to be room for regional likes and dislikes. I think too. I mean, someone would correct me if I'm wrong, but it always seemed like I was reading a bunch of badgers the other day because that's how I roll. And, right. and one thing that it was interesting to me was that a lot of their letters and their letters pages were from guys from the Midwest, like Kentucky and Indiana and Ohio. That makes sense. Because I would think about that, that was a capital book, and where would capital be most strongly distributed, right? It would be the Midwest. Right. So even even up through the 80s and early 90s, you probably had books that were stronger in different regions than others. And that kind of ended when, when you know, Marvel went crazy for a few years then. DC decided that, that crazy was where it's at and followed Marvel right off the bridge. Right. I think there's, there's still got to be a little bit of that. Like, you know, there's there's the Texas Japanese animation scene that I'm always fascinated about. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, Texas uh, is interesting just kind of generally, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are kind of, and there are books that do well, and there are shops that have kind of pet books or but no, like uh, Lucky's in Vancouver sells stacks and stacks and stacks of uh, Anders and uh, Sam Heady stuff, um, Anders Nilsson, uh, just because they that's how they push and you know yeah big for part sure. of that is the stores standing behind the particular works and you know so, when there's that one indie store. So you know, I think it's I think it's really great though that you can have these and you have all these different variety of experiences. You have people reading stuff off of Amazon. You have people reading Raza's book, right? The the book about her parents, which don't have any connection to kind of what you and I think of as the daily grind in and out of comics. I mean, oh. I guarantee you that 85% of that audience doesn't have any idea of what we're talking about half the time when we're, or, you know, kind of talking back and forth on the internet. But that's a, that's healthy. And I think as many, as many audiences as we can find, as many, places as we can find for this stuff, I think that's, a, that's an amazing thing. It's only to be encouraged. Now, I want to transition over to talking about um, your site itself. And when you announced um, that you're taking this uh, job on, um, and talk a little bit about how that affected how you do your job right now. Uh, you know, when the, the funny thing, we were, we were talking about this before we started interviewing, is that one thing I couldn't do after I took the job, but before we announced it, is I couldn't do con reports because it seemed like deeply <laughs> unethical to like saying, "Here's what I thought was terrible about SBX," and then like three months later going, "Oh, by the way, the entire time I wrote what I thought was terrible about SBX, I, I have this other job at this show that's going to take place like three weeks later." Uh, you set up as a slow meltdown where you got more and more upset about other things, and then you just announced, "That's it, I'm starting a convention." <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't put the disclaimer up top. I couldn't do the thing where you say, you know, I have this new gig, I have this, <clears throat> this thing going on, and I'm gonna you know, take that starting in the new year, and and it affects those things. So yeah, it kind of affected the way I covered shows this year, which is I basically didn't cover any shows after San Diego on. So like this next week, I'm writing a, I'm finishing up a bunch of those con reports and just gonna run them. As kind of like everything I remember about SPX, everything I remember about kind of SPX was really good this year. Right. Really and will that have the disclaimer on it? And, but yeah, I don't have the disclaimer. That I, I've taken this job and I can talk about it now. And when I you know went to this convention, I had already decided to take this job. And I kind of have to figure out like what to do in the future. I mean, I suspect that I'll not write the kind of gigantic 
reports anymore and not be the front line guy, maybe look into getting someone else to do it. I don't know. You kind of muddle through. You kind of – these um, – I mean, all of these things are – you know, there's all those – the, like ethical quandaries that come up when you run anything, right? It's um, unless you're one of those hopelessly like basement dwelling gentlemen that kind of thinks that all these things exist in a laboratory and you can build them up. I mean, there's all sorts of kind of ethical problems you go you get into. Whether that's you take advertising from certain publishers, well, right, does that affect? It's not a clear line either. Like like different people's ethics are going to be different and and not necessarily bad in relation to each other. Like we were talking before about how I'm very vocal about what comics I like and don't like, and it doesn't and I, I have no problems making comics and saying that. And so you'd think almost like just announcing that you did that you're involved in conventions, then people could say like, oh well, look at how he can run these conventions. It's almost giving you more information to talk about something if you're honest about it. I think so. I mean, I think, but I think there is always that impulse where people would just rather we have someone wrapped up in mylar somewhere that doesn't have any relationship to the cartooning world and was completely independently funded, perhaps by you know some crazy rich person that the I'm available of a blind trust, you know, maybe that, that that funded this person so they had no, so that they could be a free agent, that they could feel like they could independently take people on and not have to worry right, but about advertising being pulled. But I, I just don't know anyone that's like that. And I, I think that you just kind of muddle through, and I think that you do the best that you can. Yeah, and I think yeah, you're, I that, you're, think constantly, deal either. You're, you're constantly open to like people making these criticisms, and you have to run those letters, and you have to engage with that criticism when it comes your way. But I'm just not sure how it's... You know, it's everyone knows each other. You know, it's a small industry, so a lot of people right. will have personal relationships. It's 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 not. It's it's very. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know of any industries where people don't know each other on some level or don't know the people that are covering their industry well. So I just think you kind of have to muddle through and kind of. I think in a long in the long term, the proof is you know as long as you're reasonable about presenting. Um, possible ethical hangups that people can't see um, just by, because like people can see my advertising, but they can't see my festival. Yeah. So I have to talk about the festival. I probably don't have to talk about the advertising. Um, as long as you're reasonable about that, as long as you, um, you know, find a way to process those criticisms as harsh as they are against you, including on your own, in your own organ, your own site. Right, right. And, but I, you know, I just think you kind of, you just kind of muddle through, and I think over time people will either trust you or you or they don't, you know. And I think that a big part of it is if you're constantly writing, you know, about your pals, or if you're writing about your, you're forgiving your friends when they do stuff, and you're not um, forgiving your enemies. If you're favoring one company over another in a way that the I don't know I think people will I think the market will eventually play that out too which is that yeah but I like so much of that is just inevitable and hard to avoid just being a human being and having you know a, a, a single vision yeah I mean it's, it's true I mean it's just but I don't I don't I wish that there was kind of a clever way to kind of summarize it but I just think I just think on, on a daily kind of practical daily basis you kind of have to question yourself and you kind of have to make sure that you write the ugly stories too. And certainly I'll get, you know, horrible 
email from like close personal friends telling me that something's not a story or they can't believe that I covered something or what's up. And I, and I get that, that I get that there's a real big criticism about that right now. I, or there's a really big, there's a really big chance for that right now. Right. Because we're all kind of the access that you have to people that write about you is way different than it used to be. You can kind of get up and challenge someone immediately. You can attack them. You can go after them. And we have a way of seeing ourselves. I think uh, the kind of business of comics is degraded to the point where we all kind of, a lot of people, if not all of us see ourselves as, or themselves as this kind of commercial agent that you're a brand, you're, 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 you know, businessman brand on that negotiates the market because yeah, it even comes out in the language, right? When someone writes a positive review, you go, Oh, thank you for your support. And or in, you know, when someone asks, when someone asks a, a creator for an interview and they go, you know, you wrote these negative reviews about me. I'm just not sure that the, you know, you're supporting what I'm up to. So I'm going to pass on that interview. And I get it, you know, so I get I get the, I, the idea that you want to get along, I get the idea that you want to do that, but it's not, the job is that you, you know, write as truthfully and honestly as you can in the areas that you choose to cover and present right. that uh, kind of a baseline and honesty and, and hope people respond. But yeah, it's uh, it's not pleasant getting those letters, it's not pleasant having your friends mad at you. <laughs> Have there been points? That's going to be part of the job. What were you saying, Robert? Have there been points where you felt compromised that you've compromised yourself after the fact like well no i don't think so you know like the closest was when and when the site started like the first year the site started my book was part of a lawsuit that harlan elson lodged against fanographics Mm -hmm. oh yeah but he sues everyone (laughs) i well but i wasn't i wasn't i wasn't sued i wasn't even part of the suit which was okay odd now that i look back on it i don't know why because not only did i write did i write the book the history book that he was mad about, but I edited the the um, the book where the title had irritated him too. So I was like all over that. But well, I was irritated him. Was it the I, book on the edge of forever or something? It was the writer's book that we did. It was like a collection of comics journal interviews with writers. Uh-huh. And Kim, the late Kim Thompson uh, did the cover copy for that, and he called him a dilettante, I think, like <laughs> author comics dilettante, and this. <laughs> was part of what that he was very unhappy, he kinda of saw that as a personal attack. Whereas when I joke that guy who's yeah, you know, he is kind of a guy that kinda of dabbles in comics, you know, like good for him. But anyway, maybe we'll get sued because of that. I don't know. Um no, I, I didn't want to let it pass without making the joke that Harlan Nelson's a guy who gets really upset, but sometimes on the side he writes fiction. <laughs> I don't you know, I don't have any and I like I've never had any I've never had any problems with that guy. No, I haven't directly either. I'm just, I'm just, he's just always, he's a, he's a fun thing to watch. You got a little echoey there, Brandon, so just, um, Oh, sorry, I'll, I'll lean forward. Oh, so something I wanted to get in before, and I, I feel like you keep almost cutting Tom off here, but, but I, I, I'm always interested in how, like, I feel like, like being a sellout, for instance, is a very different thing to different people. Like if somebody like comes out with a comic book about how much they love Nike, them doing a Nike shoe comic wouldn't be that big of a deal. Like I just think like Corey Lewis, how much he loved Transformers and um, Street Fighter and all these things. And so if he does a Transformers Street Fighter comic, it's not that big of a deal. But if Chris Ware does one, it's a really embarrassing, horrible move. And I'm wondering if there's, if you think that in, that in journalistic ethics, there's also that kind of thing where you set up your own 
your own ethics. Uh, what would be like? What would be like the version of that? Like if I just wrote like a like a big like I don't know like Marvel like something like a big Marvel pro Marvel happy seventy fifth birthday Marvel comics like or they commissioned me to do that or something? Is that what you're talking about? I mean, I, you know, it's different. Like, I, I've worked, it's different. I worked for Marvel. I did, a, I did an interview for Marvel's website once, and they, right. they, never, they never paid me for it, which I've gotten more mileage out of complaining about not being paid, like, the 30 bucks that I would have gotten out of any of the $30. Uh, it, it, <laughs> even well spent, even the best spent $30 in the history of man. Um, you know, and I've worked for Fana. I did a book with Fana that wasn't published. I've worked... Is it going to be finished, or is it just kind of been so long, everyone's kind of stepped away from it? Well, we have an ending now, yeah. uh, which, with Kim's passing, I don't know. You know, that was, hmm, that's a great question, and I, I'm, we, yeah. What would I say that, to that question? I would like to finish it, and if I can find a way to do that once I get settled down for the next anniversary cycle... Then maybe we will. Um, I thought that it was. Um, I thought that the end result was going to be pretty good. Like I was, I was happy with like the excerpts that got out there. I thought that it was possible to do. I think it's possible to have someone publish something that was that kind of crabby about itself a little bit. But it was a really difficult working assignment, and not even like in a way that you know my editor there, Reynolds, is one of my five best pals in the world. So it's not like there was a personal cost to it, but it's just really difficult to write about, you know, write about someone that's also publishing you. It's just fundamentally difficult and what you concentrate on and what, and, you know, and then we got sued. It was like a whole big drama to it. So if we can find a way, I'm still friendly with those guys and I would love to find a way to do it, but we'll see. And we'll know pretty soon because I pretty much have to get started in the next few months to make the next um, cycle, next anniversary cycle, which would be a 40th anniversary cycle. And what I do is I just add, I had six chapters done. I would just add a chapter probably or add a chapter and a half. Can you go into, is this a book about the history of fanographics? Yeah, we did an oral history about the fanographics that was supposed to come out about 10 years ago. They actually had several chapters online. And they posted about four chapters online. Dan Klaus was super, he enjoyed it so much, he did a cover. You know, it was really fun, but it was not, it just kind of, it got discombobulated by the lawsuit and then kind of by the the personal fallout from the lawsuit and stuff like that that I probably will choose not to talk about in this for him until we get a resolution on that. But it was it was just a hard gig. I was it was the first time that I'd gotten sick that year and it was a much longer and more involved book as we started going on it than than we'd originally planned and I wasn't good to work with at all. It was just a difficult book. So after this horrific lawsuit fiasco thing, it just I don't think any of us wanted to go near it. And can we go back? Can we get near it again? I think so. But it'll take some doing. Well, I look forward to whenever, you know, 2017, 2018. Yeah, yeah. I would love to see it published, too, because I think that those guys are, you know, I do think those guys are total art heroes, and I think that Kim Thompson in particular was <coughs> super enthusiastic about the book and super nice about it, and he thought it was a bad idea at first, but he kind of came on board 
<laughs> Later think, on, when he started reading what was coming out, he really enjoyed it and was very helpful. And I'd like to see, I'd like to see their story told in that way, right? And that's it's Kim's title: is uh, "Comics is Art." We told you so. Um, was which is a classic Kim kind of way of putting a title together. So I would like to see it done, but we're all, yeah, I don't, yeah, oh man. I, can I punt? Can I punt? Oh, this is terrible. It's like the first juicy topic we've talked about, and I want to punt totally. It's very difficult to write. It's very difficult to work with your friends. Yeah. Especially when you're not at 100% yourself. So I was not a good writer for them, and I, I feel really terribly that the book never got done. And I, so I hope it, so I hope it does. But you know, I wonder if, though, like, who would be able to get as good an access as you with your experience working there? Um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I think people, I think access isn't a problem so much as that we are kind of already have this done. You know, yeah. I, I just think that we have enough done. I think doing it over again would be difficult. And of course, you don't have Kim any longer to kind of provide new testimony, so you'd have to work around that. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think, you know, I thought, I thought that the chapters online, I thought they were pretty good. I don't know if you remember them, Rob, I thought... Oh, I read them all, yeah. I thought it was a really fun, you know, kind of story, and it's such an improbable thing. I love the parts with Kim um, barbecuing burgers for breakfast. Yeah. That's a really interesting culture, right? But you think about it. I mean, these are guys like these guys, Mike and Gary, and then later on Kim... And all of them, you know, Tom Heinches and all these guys that came to work for them later on, Eric Reynolds. I mean, it's like these guys that start out, like Gary is, uh, spends like his high school years like doing zines, right? You know, like this little kid in his room line, counting out letter spaces on his zine, on his typewriter, so that the columns in his zine can match up, because that's how he used to have to do it back then. And for somehow out of that came like a whole literary arm of, a, of an art form. Or at least a very major contribution to it. I'm not sure that we would have gotten it without those guys there to kind of shepherd it along. That's an amazingly weird story. And then all the characters that kind of come through. So, I, yeah, I hope I hope the story gets told. And I hope oh, yeah. the story gets told that way. I think uh, it, it can't be understated the importance, especially of, of Love and Rockets, of just how it created that bridge from, you know, the underground to really bringing it to a next conscious level, um, you know, just just publishing that I think is uh, is kind of testament enough. In its yeah, if that's if that's all they did, you know, and I think that they, you know, that they're right there. They kind of fought alongside. They're kind of traditional comics people. I think that their their impact, the impact of that company, can not go understated. Understated, but it'll take. Yeah, we'll we'll see, and we'll see. I'll, I'll try to get back with Eric in the new year, and we'll try to figure that out. But man. That was now, uh, that was a weird time. I'm gonna I'm gonna shift us again. And uh... thank God. <laughs> I was just before you shift. I kept I keep thinking in the back of my head. I'm like, man, I just I want an encyclopedia of every publisher's history. Now I want to have an air cell book next to a phanograph. You don't want an air cell book. Oh, it's not for kids, but I want it. <laughs> I'm not saying anything. <laughs> should I mark the time and just delete that part? Yeah, you should. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, um, one of the things you're talking about, the, a lot of the work, uh, especially the Lousuit Sound, came out uh, around the same time you were starting the site, uh, the Comics Reporter. Um, and before we start talking, you're talking about how 
uh, the original intention doesn't really work with what's going on now, and so I'm wondering about the, the future plans of how you want to shift. Um, yeah, I just I like I like doing the comics reporter. I like it, and I and I kind of think that I haven't done a, a good job of it yet. You know, I always think it's about thirty percent of what it could be, and I it kind of fits into my my big theory of comics, Robin, which is that we the the people on the non creative side of things haven't held up our end of it. Yeah. That we haven't done as good a job as there's no. You know, there's not a Chris Ware of retailing. There's not a, a Brandon Graham of publicity. There's not, you know, there's not, there's all these talented people that work on the creative side of things, and we just haven't. I think, I think John and Quarterly's got the publicity stuff pretty Well, I get you. Back. And there are people that are good. You know, Peggy's good. And Kim Thompson was a talented man. Gary's a talented man. Eric's a talented There are, there are talented people, but I think overall as a group, yep. that we don't have the same kind of, of, um, excellence in the other areas of comics that we have in the comics. You know, it's like we go to our industry awards and it's a website that, you know, it's like the best journalism is from a website that yeah. it's not like an issue of Acme or a, a hardcover of the Peanuts work. There's not, so I kind of feel like there's work to be done there and I would like to do a good magazine. So I kind of want to stick with it. When we first came out with that thing, there were a bunch of different models, but the, t the, the one at the time was that you kind of did a blog for a few years and then someone would buy you and pay you to do it. And we yeah. did field a couple offers like that early on that just didn't work out. Then there was uh, display advertising where you'd slap some ads up on, but I, you know, <laughs> there's no way in hell that the, the advertisers that advertise on Comics Reporter just from the amount of traffic I get, which is fine, but it's not... It is not the the reason why Drawn Quarterly or IDW advertises on my site has to be that they want to support what I do and they want me to stay around. They want me to they want the site to exist. It can't be because they're getting a ton of traffic from click throughs on display advertising, and certainly not in 2014. So I kind of have to figure out a way to do where the model shifts. And we have lost a couple of advertisers in the last couple of years because advertising on a website is absurd. Um, flat out and advertising on my so we kind of have to figure out a way to find a new model that that goes to where there's some reader support or there's at least a chance for readers to support it and the one thing that so I think what we're going to end up doing is in the new year pretty quickly in the new year is put together one of those monthly crowdfunding things um, but tie it not into merely supporting what's on there right now, but tie it into um, some sort of uh, magazine-style, PDF-style type magazine effort where I can really nail down the kind of magazine of record stuff that I'd like mm -hmm. to do and do longer interviews, a couple of longer interviews, and really kind of have that be a resource. Because one thing I, I think that with the, the way journalism is and the way kind of the – is we're kind of losing kind of recent history. I don't really know when things took place. The way I used to be able to like go back and look at issues of the Comics Journal or the Comics Buyer's Guide. So I kind of like the idea of kind of um, recording the, the history of it that goes along. So Yeah, that is interesting. I, I, so I think we're going to do something like that. And I don't know what that's going to look like. Uh, I'll have to know pretty quickly. I'll know by the end of the holidays. Which is when we so should. Just for running the comics reporter, you must read all of the other sites. 
I do. Yeah. I read both of them. Yeah, for sure. Does that? Does, do you think that influences at all what you do and what you don't do on your own site? Yeah, I would imagine so. Um, I imagine sometimes it gets you mad. So that's very, you know, it's, another thing that's very different now is that the online expression of comics is much broader and wider than it used to be. Mm-hmm. And not only do we have things that, you know, are like comics news that just happen to be reported online, but like the actual culture of being online generates news. Yeah. You know, people saying sexist things, people, um, you know, getting into feuds or whatever. It's, so there's like a whole, it's really hard to cover it as one person. And I'm not doing a good job of covering like the entirety of what's important to me. I don't have as much original content on as I used to, partly because I'm just kind of struggling to keep up and kind of figure out what's going on. I mean, like, uh, you go to England, right? You go, you go to England, and there's, like, a billion cartoonists over there. It is freaking terrifying. You you go to, you walk through, like, uh, like, I went to Comic Arts Los Angeles last weekend, and you just walk through that show, and there are literally, like, eight to ten publishers, like, small, ambitious publishers that I've never heard of. <laughs> or, you know, self-publishers that are kind of accomplished and interesting, and there's just so much stuff out there. <clears throat> and I'm thinking that maybe if I if I kind of constrain or I add on a, a magazine aspect to it that'll allow me to catch some of the things in a more authoritative way. The thing is, is that it not only has to make more, it has to make what I make from Comics Reporter right now, it has to make a little more, because Comics Reporter is about, is 18, 20-hour-a-week job for me right now. Right. So if I if I need to crank that up by doing like a magazine as I go along and releasing that every first of every month, then I you know I need it needs to pay for like thirty two thirty six hours of it, and it doesn't pay well. You know, like my best years on Comics Reporter I made in the mid twenties on it, which is fine for half of my work because I have other work. Right. But it's not, and it's fine when you're like a guy who lives in middle of New Mexico and you're in your thirties and you're not doing much of anything except reading comics and hanging out and working. But, you know, as you get older, you, all the, all the costs go up and you know, you want to make, you want to have a better, a little bit better life for yourself. So all the, yeah, all those issues kind of come to play. It's right, amazing. Right. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting reading all the other magazines every day and seeing how they cover comics and what gets covered and what doesn't. It's right. I don't know. I don't know that I like any of the, a lot of the other magazines make sense to me. Like they kind of have a coverage area and they stick to it and they cover it in a certain way. But I don't know that anyone's kicking, anyone's, you know, knocking it out of the park right now. It's, I was thinking about um, like, especially the journal right now where it's kind of this catch show too, where it used to be, um, it wasn't very good, but at least it was Dirk Deppie was trying to keep track of what's going on. Um, and now it's just kind of there's this kind of fog in it. Where no, but it's it, it changed not really current. Also, something that I'm interested about is like like I really I really enjoy comics and cola, and it's interesting like Zane website, and it's it's interesting to me about how the way she approaches things is not critical. She she just talks about things she's excited about. And my experience reading stuff like if I go to most comics, if I go to the Beat or Comics Alliance or whatever, I just can guarantee it will upset me. <laughs> I'll just be like, oh, fucking comics. But if I read Comics and Cola, you know, and Comics Reporter doesn't upset me yet either. It's, it's straight news, you know, and, it, and you know, you, it, it's interesting the idea of, of like, that, 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 that kind of silence of 
only talking about things that you're excited about kind of speaks volumes too. Yeah, um, I mean that's you know I think that I think that's a lot of it because there's so much coverage you can kind of pick and choose, and I don't know what. I mean, definitely, like, three years ago, you, you could detect this major shift where people were no longer going to sites, period. Mm. They were just kind of using their, either, depending on how old they were a lot of the times, using Tumblr or using their Twitter feed or using their Facebook um, feed as their kind of home base from which they might travel out and look at somebody's site or look at, and then, you know, maybe occasionally they would go to the site. So there's a definite, like, shift in reading habits. And one of the reasons why that shift in reading habits takes place is because it's, it's much more suited to the kind of things you want out of it. I mean, like, Brandon, you're talking about, you know, you want to find out about – one of the reasons you would go to these sites is to find out about new comics. Right? One of the reasons you used to buy the journals. You used to buy the comics journal in the 80s and 90s because you would find out about weird comics there yes. that you'd never heard of before. And you might find out about it through a negative review. You might find out about it through a positive review. Now you can just, like, you can go to a column or you can go to your Twitter feed and you can have that function done for you and not have to deal with, like, some cranky interview or review of it, right? You can just get exactly what you want. And in, 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 in terms of, like, a, a Twitter feed, it's actually, like, it's about you. Like, you're the star of your own Twitter feed. So almost... You know, like, uh, it, 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 it's very much tailored to kind of this, this idea of, of very specific personal consumption. And I think that it's a real job for any of us to kind of figure out, like, how to say things of value that people will want to go to you against their best, against their primary impulse, which is kind of like to to look at your own stuff, to look at your, the stuff that is most interested in, that you're most interested in. I mean, if I can get someone to think about, Malaysian uh, freedom of expression. That's a much bigger victory now than it was ten years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I guess it would be. Now, over the last, or kind of thinking about this year, uh, one of the things I, I suggested think about is um, the I don't want to say the best of comics this year, but there's something I was thinking about. About there's kind of a it's an amazing year for comics. We may say this every okay. year. Um, here but was the, a typically good year for graphic novels, I'd say, at least for my case. Yeah, and one of the things I was thinking about is um, it's also kind of a transitionary year where we're seeing folks coming from um, kind of a newer generation making exceptional work, um, where it's less of the kind of the standard canon, uh, Chris Ware, Dan Klaus, uh, Jaime. Um, now we've got you know an amazing book by Emily Carroll. Who uh, doesn't come from those those same traditions? I don't know if that's something you've observed at all, Tom. Well, yeah, you're starting to see this this group of thirty, you know, I guess from about twenty six to thirty four, thirty five, coming out with first books, like first major books, mm -hmm. and like two books are, in, you know, like uh, two obvious books are Eleanor's book this year, How to Be Happy from Fantagraphics, and right. uh, uh, Lisa Hanawalt's book. Last year, the year, even the year before, is kind of the same way, right? It kind of you know that this person's out there, you know that they're doing work, you've seen some of the work, but here it all is in kind of this concentrated book form that works in this whole different way. Emily Carroll is another great example of someone who's that you're aware of, but you're not. It it's very different to come out with a book. It's very much more of a, of a statement. So yeah, you're starting to see that that generation come out with their first major books, and and, and that is very exciting. 
Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting when you said that, Robin, because uh, I feel like it was hard to see these people, a lot of people whose work are really liked as new, because, yeah, like Tom said, they were around. Just, uh, um, they're like, you know, because I think my favorite thing that came out this year was Farrell's Wrenchies book. And, you know, Farrell's an old man at this point. Yes, he's ancient. Uh, okay. But, like, Eleanor's book, um, I had read, I think, most of those stories in Mome. Right. I don't know if all of them were, were previously printed, but it definitely, like, it was a different way to engage um, that work. And... Well, there's, it's just, I mean, it's just flat out there's something different about having a book out. It doesn't, that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to do that. There are certainly cartoonists that are suited to other models. There's certainly... Nothing wrong with, you know, Peter Bagg is a cartoonist that's very suited, was always very suited toward a comic book form. And, yeah. um, you know, there are, there are, de- and there are definitely tons of webcomics cartoonists where it's a whole different reading experience to read their book online and to have that, have that relationship to it. But yeah, this, I mean, the, just the fact that there are kind of these books coming out, but I kind of feel like it's more, it's more like it's, we're just in this place where now it's just coming from everywhere, right? It's not, you can't point toward a specific generation. You can't point towards a specific kind of book. You can't point towards original graphic novels. Sometimes it's a collection that hits. Sometimes it's something that gets passed around online. Sometimes it's, you know, like one of the best books I read this year, and this is something you might think it's ridiculous to even think about this book this way, but the IDW of all people, I think it was IDW, did a collection of the Bungle family, which is this strip from like the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And it is this, it is the most, it is the one of the funniest strips I've ever read, and it is has it portrays this family as this like totally tight unit that hates and distrusts everyone else in the world, and so all it is is page after page of these people complaining about everyone trying to get up on them. It's actually like the most realistic portrayal of my friends' marriages that I've ever seen on a comics page, and this is like 1930s mainstream strip material, right? But that's like, what a surprise and what a pleasure that you can have that drop into your lap the same day that Eleanor put something up online. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's an amazing, you can get, you can catch comics from all directions now. Right. Sure. And that's, <laughs> that is a really, it's, it's nice to have the books out because then you can kind of compare strength. You can kind of see where someone is when you have them in book form. And I, there's a continuity to it that you can kind of see. You can kind of see what, who was doing what at what age or, or whatever. But just, man, there's no reason why uh, Farrell's book should have been one of my favorite books of the year, too, right? Is it Farrell? Farrell? That's how you say the name? Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. I don't, you know, I still have Sienkiewicz disease. I don't always know how to say them out loud. I think you got it right. Um, but, you know, it's like there's no reason why that, like this random first, second book should have been the one to hit with my specific taste, right? But there it is. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they did another book this year. I don't like, um, as a guy who's a very award-winning cartoonist in France, Emmanuel Guibert did, um, a oh, book the Allens. About, about, yeah, did a book about, uh, Doctors Without Borders and did a book about World War II. And he did a book this year about his, the same guy that he did the World War II book about his childhood in 1930s California. But I think it was a fantastic book. And it's not, like, you, you want to talk about something you're not expecting. You're not expecting, like, soulful depictions of 1930s California from your first, second pile. I, you know, it's not, I'm not. So, yeah, it can come at you from everywhere. It can come at you 
in the form of a mainstream book, maybe even too. You know, it can come from image comics. It can come from fanographics. It can come online. Um, it's it's really nice to be able to catch books from all directions like that now. Yeah. Yes. Did you did you mention that you had a list of books that you were excited about this year, or are you just going to slowly go through? You know, I, I, well, you know, I kind of talked about some of them. I thought that I, what, what were some of the books? You know, a book that I thought was really good that we have, that I don't think people appreciate as much as they should is I thought that John Porcelino book was really good. Yeah, it was fantastic. The Hospital Suite? Yeah. And what was really interesting about that to me was that John is someone who's been around for a hundred years, right? I mean, he's been doing the many comics and he's a total, like, he's a total arts hero in the same way, in, in a different way, but in, on a similar level to like the, the Fanographics founders were, where he kind of created a whole different way of thinking and, and about comics and thinking about how comics could could be used. Yeah. And it's almost a <laughs> in some ways where I didn't expect you look at the stuff and the, the emotional weight is so much more than you would ever think from the way it's drawn. Yeah. And, and this book in particular, Brennan, was really interesting to those of us who knew him because we always kind of knew about some of the medical problems. This is a book about his first his physical problems and then the kind of mental problems that grew out of the years of struggle with these physical problems. Um, and to know this, I mean, it, it sounds like it sounds fun. Everyone go buy a copy. But what was amazing about that, if you, if you kind of know, if you had never heard of him before, it's this very affecting book. Yeah. And if you've been following him for 20 years, like a lot of us have, it all of a sudden fills in the blanks for all these things that, that you knew about, like the fact that he had a, terrible ear problems and couldn't talk to you on the phone for a couple of years or that he was, you know, struggling with OCD in a really significant way that you kind of saw maybe a, a flourish of here and there. And I just thought that was really kind of just truth telling, very specific, measured, totally perfect book. And I don't know that we always um, appreciate what Porcelino does, you know, past this kind of um, Johnny Appleseed, you know, the idea of this guy as this kind of like mini comics maker <laughs> traveling the country, talking about out of the bag. Yeah, you know, kind of handing out comics as he goes. But I mean, he's just like a first-rate cartoonist. I, I just thought that was emotionally affecting as any as any I saw this year. I mentioned right. Earl's book. I, you know, the, I like the sock. I thought the sock monkey collection was really strong. That came out at the beginning of the year. Um, beautiful darkness is the one from that. Oh, kind, yeah. It kind of eclipses it, but I thought that Tony's collection was as good as any comic that came out this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that Nick Mandag comic that came out. Um, uh, the pooping one. The one about pooping, um, about Great. people at an office place being asked not to poop. Facility Integrity, and that's with Alvin. I thought that was a straightforward humor comic that we're seeing fewer and fewer of now. I mean, the only thing I can describe is it was, kind of, it was kind of like Ted May's, you know, kind of like the way that Ted May came out with that book a couple of years ago, where it was kind of like this weird humor comic book that you don't see much of anymore. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really welcome. Um, I liked the Don Rosa collection. Um, I liked the the book that Pitzer did, um, Operation Margarine, the Katie Skelly book, I thought was really oh, strong. That was, that was fun. And I don't, I, and she's really interesting too because she's not, her influences are all different, right? I mean, it's kind of, it's all like French comics and kind of trash cinema. And it's not like, and she, you can tell that she's not one of the school kids that she kind of comes from a, a maybe a broader background um, educationally than that. But, I thought you know, she went to SVA. Did she, she didn't go to SVA? No, she's a Syracuse University. Oh, grad. that's right. 
Um, <laughs> just interviewed her, Robin. Yeah, you know, I this whole year is kind of a fog for me. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that was really yeah. interesting because she did the work with, with Sparkplug, which was very kind of uh, the nurse nurse, and this book was a... Um, a definite step up from that. And it's really interesting to see someone work in that style and get such expressive quality out of finger drawing like that and stuff. I thought, and I thought that book was a lot of fun. Um, I was reminded of it this week. The reason I'm talking about it is because the Bitch Planet came out, the, the Kelly Sue DeConnick written image book with an artist whose name I don't remember. And people are talking about how that was kind of like this kind of reach back to these trash um, Trash influences, cinema influences, but it seems like uh, Skelly yeah. and, and Pitzer and Adhouse got there about you know eight months ago. Um, and those those two specifically, because taking these like these kind of very male-driven things, kind of these women doing comics relating to it, is interesting. I haven't read Bitch Planet yet, but that certainly seems what uh, what Skelly was doing. Yeah, no, I just think it's uh, I think sometimes books like from publishers like Pitzer's get kind of lost. Um, I liked the, oh, maybe one more. I did like the Ross Chess book. I thought that was really good. I thought it was really strong. Um, and I liked, um, I mentioned Don Rosa. I was surprised by how good those comics held up. But what else? You're huh? still waiting for a copy of Here. How what? You're still waiting I for a copy. I thought it Here. Um, I still haven't read um, Emily Carroll's book, Beyond the One Time. Um, there's a couple that are left. That's why I never do like best of lists until like March because I'm still reading. Right, stuff, right. You know, is is here that book that's the the older raw artist doing the thing? Yeah, yeah. I showed it to you yesterday. Yeah, it's really. Yeah. I think I blew it off. I was like, didn't he do that comic in 1982? He did a short story version. This is a longer version of that, and I honestly have not seen it, so I could not tell you. That was actually the first. That short story was astonishing when it came out because I don't think. There hadn't been a lot of people that have played. I, I, I'll describe like a, I'll describe a formal effect because that is exciting radio. I mean, there's a, there's a, basically what he, what he does in here in the short story and I'm sure in the longer work is take like a fixed place and then look at it through various jump points in time, right? So you see like the house that was there in 1950, and then you might see the, the Native American that was there 300 years earlier, and it kind of is this. Um, touching story about how you know things how rapidly time changes how things change rapidly over time and and right. kind of like nothing a, nothing is permanent right it's really a story that's like that crumb story that just shows the uh the the evolution of like a of a of a scene but it's yeah. a lot more dynamic it's a lot yeah, like yeah. that it's a lot more one thing that he does that not a lot of people do is that he would actually blend then the time periods into the specific Framework. So not only did you have the specific moment-to-moment aspect that we talk about in comics, right. but it was like group of moments to group of moments. So instead of like a progression of notes on a piano, it was almost like he was playing chords. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really the, uh, interesting formally. And so anything that he does, I'm there for. Yeah, no, um, it, it almost feels more like an art piece than a story in some ways too. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Maybe I, mean, I need to read yeah, the longer I, I read, things. I haven't read the big one yet. Um, yeah. It reminds me, there was a. Uh, did you see the recent uh, Grant Morrison, Frank Quietly, uh, Pax Americana comic? I did read Pax Americana. Do you remember that there's a two page spread scene in it that's showing a murder from different points of view mm-hmm. in the same way that here kind of does? I thought that was interesting. 
Well, no, yeah, I mean that 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 comic is a is a bunch of interesting um, set pieces. I mean, my God, you could break, probably break it down to like ten or twelve really great set pieces. Yeah. I don't, I haven't read it. You know, I, I read it and I lost my copy. I'm I'm sorting my library out, so I don't know. I don't I really have so, a formed opinion on it yet. I got so hung up on on how Morrison just can't get over being mad at at uh, Alan Dad. Moore seeing it that it kind of just. I was like, man, this would be a great comic if I didn't know anything about their relationship. And that came out in 1985, right after Watchmen or something. Yeah. We're but, all mad at uh, that one. something that isn't like Mark Miller, I guess. We're all just a little bit mad at Alan Moore. <laughs> just as a Yeah. Not Robin. <laughs> Robin's buying all of his crossed issues. I'll buy the trade. I'll wait for the trade. Thank you very much. Those were I, I this is a little off topic this is incredibly off topic is I went in and saw the Alan Moore crossed issue and I was like, This is the most tasteful crossed issue because normally it's like a rapey zombie thing. I was like, This is the most tasteful crossed issue ever. And then right next to it was the, the Borges and Minara Jodorowsky book. And I flipped through that and it literally just had a like a watercolor painting of a sack of severed penises in it. <laughs> Like the like the Europeans had come in and been like, ah, no, we're we're covering. There's only a certain amount of gross, gross out violence porn that can be on the shelves every month. And they they used it all up that month on on Borges. God bless you. Yeah, I, 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 I want I want to read that one, Brandon, because I don't I don't have any sense of what he's like as an artist now beyond these like pin up covers that he's doing. Um, I, you know, I don't. So I, I, that, that's actually, I think that's work from like 10 years ago or 8 years ago. Yeah, about that. So at least it would at least give me some idea of him as an artist. Um, I, I don't know. He seemed like a nice man. He came to San Diego. He was very sure that no one would be going to his spotlight panel. And just <laughs> complaining about it. Nobody likes those in America. Yeah, so all of a sudden it was, it was like, very practical. He was quite happy. I don't know. That's a... That's a whole. I know. Mean, you want to talk about that, Robin? Do you want to talk about the whole? The, well, the Spider Woman thing. <sighs> no, just like it's... all these issues in general that come up now. These kind of uh, these things that arise from culture, or comics culture. Yeah, I mean, that one in particular is so odd for me because people were so. I don't know. It's it's like getting caught up on how people should create art, and I don't necessarily enjoy that drawing. But it, there, there's a part of me that's having a tough time. I think with... it's how it was marketed. I, that one's screwed because I think it's several but, different But that's... The, the, the marketing is a problem. But there were a lot of folks saying, this this is a terrible drawing, shouldn't even have been drawn. And it's like, who are we to really get to this point where we're dictating creative work to such a degree? I think that would be valid, more valid if it wasn't a thing that was marketed towards women. Because it is saying, like, hey, read a comic. We made a comic that you can relate to, and Manara can also masturbate to it. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, what's your take, Tom? I, you know, my take on most of those issues, and, I, and this one kind of showed some of the the odd flourishes that happened. But, you know, a lot of the issues, I think it's not – I well, I welcome the attention. I, mean, I welcome those. I welcome that whole avenue of criticism. I, I think it's great that people are a lot more – demanding in terms of everything from the kind of stuff that they are, are forced to see, that they're asked to buy, that they, you know, or the conduct of their fellow creators at, at shows and all these professional settings. I think that's all great. I think it's long overdue. I think, I, even though 
I'm of the mind that, you know, I always think about things I could do to improve my own actions in the world, my own kind of professional conduct. So, you know, I think there's, I think that, you know, I, I, I am always a person that can be in for criticism. And I was some this year. I was criticized a few times this year for, um, stances that I took or, or ways that I've made arguments. Um, and, but, you know, I think overall that's such a great thing. The one worrisome thing as I think the, that this takes place in the online dominant part of that culture is that these things often get boiled down to winning the argument on the internet more than it does kind of figuring out what's going on in the actual world. Yeah. And I think a lot of times you not only want to win the argument on the internet, you want to really fucking win the argument on the internet. Like you want to crush people on the internet. You want to win like a thousand percent, right? That's what the that's what internet arguing is about. It's not even it's like what we learned back in ninety five. Like if you say if someone says, Wow, you that was a terrible essay you wrote, if you jump on and say, Yeah, okay, that was not my best essay, people don't go, Wow, that was a really rational response. They go even you admit that was a horrible essay. Like yeah. they, there's no like it's always about winning the argument. And I right. think in a lot of these cases, and maybe the Monaro case is, is something that where it shows this out. It wasn't enough to say, "Wow, what an unfortunate cover for Marvel to have out there this month." It was Monaro is a, a kind of a bad guy, kind of a creepy guy. He's a bad artist. And in the greatest element of that was when people were taking, like, translated interviews and saying that he wasn't articulate. Like, when he was translated, like, like through, like, a Google or something. Like, <laughs> you know, of course he's not. And, yeah, you win the argument, right? So not only was this a dumb cover, this was he's, a, he's kind of a you know, semi, maybe a semi-rotten guy, maybe the art is bad. Like, you, you pile on to win the argument, but it kind of draws us into these areas that are just bizarre and kind of, not really helpful or fruitful. Right, or, you know, yeah. I, I get because we're, we're I get like people push back. I get no one seems to. I always, whenever someone comes under fire for a personal conduct matter, all of a sudden they become a terrible artist, too. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it just seems like we want to win the argument so bad yeah. that we're kind of piling on in a way. And I, I kind of wish that we would get at the heart of right of kind of making these things better in the real world rather than winning the the internet version of it. Right. Well, it's interesting, too, because I, I remember talking to, to people in, in New York about uh, – I, I, I talked to some mainstream artists that were very much under the impression of, like, you know, eventually they're going to come after all of us. You know, nobody knows why they went after Frank Miller, but they went after him and you're next, which is a really funny way to look at it. Right. Oh, yeah, especially because of your uh, stance uh, before Watchmen. Oh, yeah, you got to be careful. <laughs> it was like, Brandon, you better be careful that you don't piss off the artist on before Watchmen. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess it's just another version of that, but with real world issues as opposed to nerd world issues taking yeah. their place. I, I guess I, I do wish that there was more of a self critical element to it too, though. I mean, that's the thing is that I I got to the point where last year, when I was really bored, I went around and looked at a big. There was a big round of anti um, anti creepy behavior, right? Um, criticism going on, which is again, it's like hugely necessary and. So good that it's happening. But I, I went on and like looked at some of the people that were the most strident in their declarations of how bad this was. Mm -hmm. And I sat there and I thought, and I, I tried to recall if I knew any stories about this person being not the best person at a show. 
Right. And about half the time, I could think of a story, you know, from my vast knowledge of just being around 20 years of people not behaving correctly, but, you know, absolutely. So it just, I wish that we were all so, we were a little bit more self-critical, that there's all, there's all stuff for us to do. That, that, that there's, this, we should maybe, we need to, everyone needs to clean up their act, and the, the best way to do that is maybe starting with yourself, and that we're all not immune to this. It's all not acting out. What were you trying to say, Brandon? I said it's Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it sounds it sounds dumb, but I, I honestly do think it's something that we trip over in comics because people are so people are so adamant that you and I, part of that I think is coming is about winning the argument, and part of that is just not being. I don't know. If, you know, it's like it's not everyone who does something that you don't agree with isn't there to. It doesn't mean that they're not. Uh, that the, the, they don't want these things. They may just disagree with you. You know, they are. They might, or they are. And you probably. I don't know. I. I just think I wish there were more of a self-critical aspect to it because I think that we. A lot of us we concentrate more about cleaning up our own act. Yeah. Well, it's difficult but too the, because there's that thing of like if you do think of it as people selling themselves and this product as an image, then you almost don't want to like show weakness in that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think there's a terror to kind of ruin your your place in the marketplace. Whereas, well, like Brandon yourself, you've been um, in positions where you've kind of uh, I was thinking of the stuff with Sheldon. Um, where yeah, you kind of had to be in a position to step back and go, "Okay, you're right. Uh, I th- that guy was being an asshole." And right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly and and it, it's. Yeah, no, it, it gets complicated. And, you know, it's interesting. I've had people, I've had conversations with, about the Brian Wood thing, and and when people defend him really adamantly, I'm like, oh, good, I'm glad he has some friends. Jesus, you know, <laughs> it's it's because people, you know, people are hopefully three dimensional enough human beings where they have, even if they are huge fuck ups and doing shitty things, that they have people that they're nice to. Hopefully, yeah. I mean, I guess I, I guess my stance would be that a lot of us are shitty and do fucked up things. You yeah, know? that's valid. Um, and I and I know that there's a there's a version of me that could come out like the dumbest joke I ever told on a panel is someone decided to tell that story, or if you know like the dumbest pass I ever made at a bar, uh, at, you know, after a convention, like all these things could be, you know, it's like I'm not. I, you know, the, I, there are things that I could work on too. I could, I could work on presenting myself in a more professional, in a more professional, um, you know, upstanding way too. And I just, I think that's where that stuff starts. And I just kind of wish that, that I, th- I hope that just for the, to facilitate making things better as opposed to just like winning the argument, that it, it can start with like a healthy dose of, of self criticism, you know. And that was that was actually something uh, Brad and I were kind of careful about especially at spx um was not at least myself i didn't get drunk um and make an ass of myself I yeah no i don't all. get drunk conventions but well yeah. you didn't get drunk <laughs> 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 yeah well there, there no, was that's, that amazing that's, panel that's a good I... thing about also being in your late 30s to not you know <laughs> Like if I'm gonna if I'm gonna drink, I'm gonna need a couch there and nobody around me who will uh, listen to a thing I say, you know. 
Right. But I do think, I think that's a big part of it. I think that there's a kind of extended childhood in comics. I think there's a, you know, there's a resentment of guys that want to wear uh, nice clothes to their signing. You know, like, why, why are you putting on airs? You know, why do you think you're better than me? Right. That kind of drives these kind of comics things, too. So people kind of want this endless playground of kind of slouchy 20-something behavior into your 50s and 40s and 50s. And I just don't think we can have that anymore. I think it's different now. I, just don't I think, think it's time you know, that we all get some nice fedoras just move on yeah yeah so that i guess that that is what that has been a very interesting milieu in which to operate this year but as far as like the issues themselves i i welcome all of it i just wish it were less about winning arguments on the internet that i that i think it is and i wish it were more um that there was a a healthier self-critical aspect to it too because i think that just makes for um, more lasting solutions. That's all. I mean, it's so, not any. I don't excuse anyone's behavior. And if someone acts like a creep and they get slammed in creep court, you know, in social court, you're almost always just reaping what you sowed there. You know. Right, right. But yeah, no, that seems like a very mature way to approach it of, of kind of going at it from talking about yourself and yeah, and and the idea of of actually improving things through like long lasting because it's not. They're not like some kind of Street Fighter bosses you just get rid of and move on to the next one. So people are going to stay in comics. You're going to see that person at the next show. Yeah. yeah. Well, and this is there's a unfortunately there's a there's room for improvement everywhere. So I you know it's I, maybe we can improve things instead of just I don't know winning this, getting a bunch of likes. I don't know. This was something I was asking about earlier. Uh, maybe before we started, is talking about that kind of the responsibility that we have as journalists uh, of what we cover, but also what we put forward, I guess. Uh, I don't know yeah. what the question I'm asking is. There, there is no question there, Robin. That's what... <laughs> you mean almost like a... Like a um, well, what is our... For the work? What is our responsibility as, as journalists... Um, here I'm calling myself a journalist again. Well, um, I mean, you kind of decide what that is, right? I mean, no one's compelled to write something. Talk about like, what a sellout is, like what your responsibility as a journalist is. Like, like if you, you know, it, if you're running a website that's nothing but like, you know, reviews of every issue of Aquaman comics, then you don't need to necessarily take a big social stance sometimes. But I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'm just thinking as we're hearing. I don't know about yourself, Tom, but I hear more stories of um, general terrible dudeness, and it's like, how do you res- how do I resolve that with myself of uh, the kind of community we're in, and kind of bringing all this information and people telling you stuff. I know Brandon here is probably tons of stuff about folks, and um, you know, what do we do with this? Like, we talk about how we need to be introspective. And, but we're also witnessing a lot of shit. Right. That's a, that's a good question, because I, I'm always in the opposite realm where I don't witness that stuff. And in fact, there are things that I know about where I can't get people to go on the record in any way, shape, or form, right. where I don't have firsthand knowledge, so I can't go on the record myself. And that's really frustrating. I think there's a real deep distrust of my site and other sites in terms of kind of as a way to present these issues, you're giving up control. Um, An idea that I'm just, I'm like, I'm like, you know, 
I'm a, a guy. I'm in my mid-40s. I come from, I'm white. Um, I come from a middle-class background. I might not be the sympathetic ear, naturally, that someone is looking for <coughs> when presenting an issue like this one. I hope that, I mean, I, I hope that people will come around to kind of trusting us with some of these stories and that actually make a story of them and not not argue them on the, you know, or argue them in kind of back channels. I don't think that's as effective as people think. I think mm-hmm. to actually have someone uh, to write a story and to hold someone's feet to the fire and to make, you know, to go on the record is a amazingly brave thing, but it's also a very effective thing, and I think that's in doubt right now. Do you think uh, there's a, appropriate ways of handling that kind of thing? Um no, I mean it's not. It it, I don't know. There's no, there's no rule book when it comes to that kind of thing. I just, I, I kind of wish that I was. I, there are a couple stories that I wish I was able to write this year, where I just could not get a single. They just did not trust me enough to give me the story and let me run with it. And I didn't have, um, I didn't have firsthand knowledge in a way that I could kind of, you know. Then you're just kind of trying this out in public, and I don't think I can do that either because of the job I have. I do think I have a responsibility to kind of run it through the the process. Um, so yeah, it does put you in a weird position. And certainly, like I like I mentioned when I went through and looked at the arbiters of morality and said, okay, like I know that story about that person, and I know that story about that person, and I know these stories, but I can't, you know, there's no like we don't have a Bill Cosby out there. Don't get me wrong, I, at least I'm not one that I know of. We don't know. I don't know anyone that's criminal acting criminally. Because then I would be compelled to pursue that story no matter right. what. But yeah, but I'm, I'm just talking in terms of like creepy behavior or yeah. tollish behavior, loutish behavior. But yeah, I don't. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're kind of compelled to keep those in mind and kind of pursue them when you can, pursue them when you have an opportunity to. But certainly, we can all do a better job. Certainly, I could do a better job. I could do a way better job of, of being a, a trustworthy source that kind of went after people on this kind of thing, for sure. And now, because of your role with these conventions, does that affect that process, too? Though? Yeah, because I don't you're know. Also... I don't know. I think there's a lot of improvement I could make as a journalist. I think the site could be a lot better. I just think it's the failure of the site. I don't think... <laughs> I don't. I don't think. It, well, I just don't think it's like. I don't think people will go like. You know, I was going to take this story of of this guy wanting to, you know, hitting on me at a show for professional favors. But, you know, I'd really like to be invited to Cartoon Crossroads Columbus. I don't. I don't think people's mind will work that way. Maybe they will. I don't know. Maybe I'm. Maybe that makes me more of the establishment now. And certainly, I have to worry about. Well, I mean, on your own case, if you well, do a story I'll, I'll about someone, about all the, the convention stuff, all the convention aspects of harassment and um, issues too. So that's a that's a whole new world that's going to to open up to me. I have to make sure that that we have a um, you know an outstanding show in that way too. So mm-hmm. I don't know. There are no easy answers, Robin. You thought this show was going to be all about like lighthearted quips and shit, didn't you? I was wondering what your favorite X Men run was. It's just me shrugging over and over again. I have no yeah. idea. I'm We're just no crumpling up all of our Five for Friday questions we had. That's right. <laughs> it was Cowboys this week, wasn't it? Or was that an old well, one? It was Cowboys last week, I think. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Why not today? It's the mystery of Five for Friday. 
Friday Night Sausage Party. <laughs> now, which I could probably... I. You know, that's kind of an interesting side issue there, too. Because I thought about that, because I have almost no women participate in that feature, right? And I just like, almost none. And I think that I could, if I made a... should. Am I compelled to make that more female-friendly? Am I compelled to kind of seek out participants in that specific feature? Well, it's all depending on what you want your site to be. Well, or what I want that feature of the site to be. And if I think that that feature... Yeah, I don't know. Am I just happy with the, like whoever wants to show up? That's fine. Or do or should I invite you know female readers that the site has and or be more aggressive about that? I don't know. That's actually a really good question. I, I might be failing in that area to see that as an opportunity to yeah to have the site be friendlier that way. You're right. Interesting. I guess because it would be interesting to see something where you. It's a dude farm. What? That How what? I think it was cutting you off there. What were we saying? I don't know. Something stupid. Something boring. Something about fedoras. Because it would be interesting to do um, a thing where you just asked a bunch of, you know, uh, black female cartoonists uh, questions on a five for Friday and and then asked a bunch of white dudes the same thing and and the dramatically different answers you may or may not get. That would be. That's a way way to approach it. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of coverage issues, Brandon. I mean, I do engage those thoughts, right? And it's like, I have the holiday interview series coming up and you certainly want to be as like representative of the entire field as you can. You yeah, should, but, then, but then it's really important to never be like, you're our, you're our minority guest we've got here. Yeah. yeah. No, you don't. And it's, and it's difficult and sometimes I don't do a very good job of it. Like one year I thought it would be fun just to only interview women mm-hmm. for the holiday interview feature and my thought was that there are more than enough women representative in all areas of comics. Right. That I could do it. I wouldn't announce it. I would just do it and see if anyone noticed. And I, the, my problem was I could not explain this to people as I was doing it without it just sounded awful. Because it was. There's there was an element of awfulness to it. Even though my, my intentions were not the worst, um, it was such a clumsy, stupid way to go about it that I just got hammered and I finally just gave up. But certainly, like, you know, coverage issues, you want to make sure everyone's being covered for sure. Right. Huh. Well, what would be the downside of something like that, of just doing a bunch of interviews with women cartoonists? Would it be kind of... It sounds like you're putting them into, like, like I'll do all the women at the end of the year. It sounds like, yeah. Oh, right, right. It sounds like, okay. it sounds yeah. like here, here comes the ladies, you know? Yeah, like, I need to catch up. Right. Yeah, it okay, does. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it does. But I feel like, yeah, I get it, it. Doing I get it and not mentioning it. Well, but you have to mention it to the people that you're kind of talking to. I guess I didn't have to, but yeah, I don't know. There was something like that that happened on the Inkstead site earlier this year. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. There was some of those on the Inkstead site. Um, and that, you know, I think that, and I think that's great. I think it's it's great to like think about things in those ways where we're just not, you know, ghettoizing or it's just dumb. It's I mean, it's, uh, the the women I know that make comics the people of color and other mechanics, it's just, they just want to be treated like professionals. They want to be treated like valued professionals. It's like anybody. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's demeaning to not when they're not, it's, it's specifically and horribly demeaning and I'll, and whatever, you know, has to be done to make that less demeaning and less horrible. God, let's do that. Christ. All right. Today. Yes. Yesterday, man, two years ago, let's do it. Right. It's dumb. 
so much about comics and so much about the apparatus of things that comment on comics are based on kind of boredom and not having enough comics to read and not having, like the reason I read Comics Journal when I was a teenager was for two extra dollars, I could extend my comics reading experience Yeah, like three hours. That was amazing. And I honestly think that we don't realize just how much of what we think of as like this vital information is just bored people at work looking for something to do. And now they can read the tailored stuff to them, the social media stuff, or they can just read more comics. Mm-hmm. They don't, you really have to wonder like what role that a magazine has or what role like a journalistic entity has in the overall picture of things. What do they really need? And I think in my case, like it's not so much that I really fulfill any need. I think that there's a certain number of people that like my writing enough that they want to read that, right? I don't think it's about like, oh, he really covers, like I learned so much about this. Maybe they do. I don't know. But when people tell me what they like about it, they say, oh, I just like reading your writing. I think that's a good note to end on. It's dumb. Yeah, that's a great note to end on. Yeah. <laughs> We can re, we can we can re-edit the interview like it's the end of one of those Mad Magazine fold-in things where it just says you fold the whole interview together and it's like we're talking to Tom. It's dumb. I see that you can.